I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Reunited and it feels so good. Oh, yeah. Hey, we're reunited. We are in the same room for the first time in a long time. And it feels so good. And you know what we had to worry about at lunch? What? Is that I felt the rain down in Africa or I blessed the rain down in Africa. And it was the millennial in the room who knew the right lyrics. Yeah. Back in the 80s, we didn't listen to words. We just felt things. And the millennial is <laughs> hypercritical. And, but if Jesse wants to do a podcast here on blessing, then he's, he's the odd man out. We're about feelings here. About feelings feelings. Yes. dominate and they rule. But you want to talk about someplace, something that should be loaded with feeling. Yeah, I, I want to know how, how you felt about... Um, well, will, will this give it away if I, if I uh, associate a date with this podcast? Uh, we do it's that? It's going to go out this Friday, so... Yeah, okay. Sunday's reading. Sunday's this reading, week. yes. Uh, last Sunday's reading was about, do you remember, Mr. Like, Weiler? Like yesterday? Well, that all depends on or what day of the week on, this yeah. is going on. Uh, how about, let, let's call it the second Sunday of Lent. Lent. Transfiguration Sunday. Transfiguration, right. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, this, on the way to church, we were talking about this, because there is... It a, means across the figurines. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. what I mean. It's Greek. From the, uh, from yeah. the Greek slash Latin yeah. slash... Uh, <laughs> But there is, there's another time of the year when we actually celebrate the Transfiguration, right? So it's, it's, it's kind of called Transfiguration Sunday sometimes, but I sw- there's actually a Feast of the Transfiguration mm-hmm. too, which is something different. Do you know when that date is for 10 bonus points? It's, uh, Wait, August are we doing another 6th, quiz this week? Right. Summer sometime. Yeah, we are, but not, not right now. Yeah. Oh, okay. We're talking about yeah. the Transfiguration. Right. So, That's one of my favorite things in all of Scripture. It's pretty awesome. Oh, my Peter, two- James, and John go to Mount Tabor. And they're like, oh, do 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 do, walking around with Jesus, and bam, oh, yeah. on their yeah. faces, yeah. can't even look. And Peter wanted it to be intense. Intense. <laughs> it was very but intense. But it, it was right. too intense. That's good. So. That's good. Well, what I, th- I I'm with you, Dennis. I think the the story of the Transfiguration is, um, I mean, just on its own merits, is one of the best stories in the Bible. But I think it's well, particularly liturgical. Uh, for those of a liturgical uh, mindset. But let's do a little recap because. Yeah. Maybe not everybody's as familiar with scripture as you are, Chris. So, oh well, well, why don't you do the recapping, and okay. I'll tell you what uh, some of the things that stood out. Peter, uh, James, and John go up to the top of Mount Tabor, which is a mountain. You've been there, actually, right? Uh, I saw it from a distance. Okay. I didn't go to the top. It was right. bad weather, but um, there was a luminous there. cloud up there. Yeah, well, not right. when I was there, but okay. the uh, the idea is climbing up mountains is the place where you meet God, and. Suddenly, Jesus becomes, I think the phrase is like, dazzlingly white mm-hmm. with light. Even his clothes became transfigured. Literally, that means uh, shape changed, or the reality is something of a shape changed. And his heavenly glory appeared on earth, and uh, Moses and Elijah are there, right? And they're mm-hmm. talking, nobody knows what they're saying. And God the Father does his one of his rare occasions where the voice of the Father comes to earth. The other one's the baptism of Christ. This one's the transfiguration. Oh, we're just talking about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does he say, this is my beloved son? I think in both instances. uh, Correct. This is my beloved son. This is the Adam Bartlett uh, communion uh, setting. In whom whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Go ahead. All right. Good. Yeah. So in other words, hey, this guy who looks kind of normal 
just blew your socks off because mm-hmm. he's now lit up with the glory of heaven, mm-hmm. which they can't even look at, right? This is how Moses was with God. He could barely stand and look at God's face. And then prophets from the Old Testament, lawgivers, Moses and Elijah, suddenly see the completion of what they prophesied. And uh, it's an amazing moment. Even Christ's clothes became radiant. And this is the basis like for all sacramental realities, at least as far as I can tell. Literally amazing. 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 Good. So, so okay, so there's the story. And I, I want to share with you a couple of things that I think are uh, especially liturgical about it. Uh, the first is, especially during Lent, as we're getting ready to uh, prepare for Easter. And the first is, as you said, uh, Jesus is standing there with Moses and Elijah. And in the story that we, well, we read yesterday the account of the transfiguration from the Gospel of St. Matthew. And you're right, it says uh, they, they were conversing with him. But you're right, it doesn't say what they were talking about. But in the Gospel of Luke, it does say what they were talking about. I don't remember. Yeah? They were talking about scripture, weren't they? Uh, sort of, but not really, but sort of. Tell us, tell us, Grace. It says, uh, Moses and Elijah appeared to him, and they spoke with him about the exodus he was about to undergo from Jerusalem. Oh, mm. yeah. About the exodus he was about to undergo from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, of course, is always a stand-in for heaven and right well, realities and stuff. Well, like and especially, it's, it's, a, it's the place where heaven and earth touch, mm-hmm. where heaven and earth meet. Okay? But when you think about the Exodus, right? so if you have heard of this term before, it's mostly associated with Moses, right? Yeah. And so what I think is uh, uh, kind of insightful here on this story of the transfiguration, especially in the Gospel of Luke, is you have Moses there who kind of underwent uh, history's first great Exodus, right? So in actually the book of Exodus, mm-hmm. uh, in chapter 14 is where, it, uh, w- where we hear the account of the chosen people uh, passing over from sin and death and slavery in Egypt. They've been there for 400 years, and God the Father says to Moses to go to the Pharaoh to say, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. And so finally there's this great Exodus. And we know the story. This is read every Easter vigil. So they're out of slavery, out of Egypt. They're out of slavery. So they pass over, they pass through the Red Sea, this body of water. So this is the first Pascha, the first passing over, the passing out of fallen earth into this, at least for the time being for them, relatively free uh, land where they're not oppressed any longer. This is kind of a big theme of the Old Testament. When you read it carefully, it's, you're in slavery, I'm going to get you out of slavery. You're near destruction, I'm going to rescue you from destruction. And the way you do it, the way you mark that is you get on the other side of some body of water, whether Mm. it's the Jordan River Mm. or the Red Sea or whatever. Mm. Chaos is averted, and you are rescued by the God who loves you. Exactly. So we know this happened with Moses and the people, but what about Elijah? He was the other one who was standing there talking to Jesus about the exodus he was about to undergo from Jerusalem. He's the fiery chariot guy, right? He is. But, okay, so uh, Elijah was taken up in a fiery chariot, uh, this whirlwind, okay? But what happened before he passed into the heavens in this fiery chariot? I actually only only noticed this uh, fairly re- fairly recently. I think you mentioned this in like season one, and I have totally forgotten. I didn't I didn't know this in season one oh, actually. Okay. <laughs> so. but you know you're slaking my desire. Tell oh, us, Chris. Okay. What is slaking. Oh, slaking is a good word yeah. here. So in uh, I guess this is 
uh, I think, second book of Kings or something like that, uh, Elijah and his, um, I don't know, what would you call him, like his, his mentor, the person he's teaching, a guy named Elisha. That would be his or Elisha. Elisha. Mentee? Okay, Elisha. Yeah, I don't know how you, how you pronounce that. But anyway, they're walking along the Jordan River, and they get to the Jordan River, and what Elijah does is he takes off his mantle, and he rolls it up, and he smacks the Jordan River, oh, yeah. and he goes, yeah. I don't know if it makes that noise. Or not. This is a David Fager. Sounds word. like a lightsaber. That sounds like your uh, pop dispenser sound for grace. Oh, yeah, exactly. Again, that's, we can thank David Fagerberg for that. So he takes his mantle off, and he strikes the Jordan River, and the Jordan River stops, and it opens, and what Elijah and Elisha do is they cross over, they pass over, they make this exodus out of the earthly land, and they get on the other side, and it's at that point that the chariot comes down and takes Elijah up in it on his way to heaven, and Elisha says, Master, Master, uh, uh, you know, Send a, what is it? Send your wisdom upon me or a portion of your wisdom. I'm really stretching this now. But Elijah throws his mantle down to Elisha, and how he gets back to the other side is the same drill as he smacks the Jordan and goes over. But I think the, the point that I see in this story, especially when you read the account from the Gospel of Luke, where Moses and Elijah are speaking to Jesus about the exodus that Jesus is about to undergo through, from Jerusalem, is that both of these guys, Moses and Elijah, have already done this exodus mm. that in, in foreshadow that Jesus is about to do in reality. Except it seems like they went to the good land, and Jesus is going... To where to they the came from, lands. right? To sort of cross over the other way and enter into our dysfunction, right? If he's leaving Jerusalem, that's... that's well, he is, but there's... A, I, it, it occurred to me the other night, I've never really thought of it this way before, but, um, you know, the, the whole story of salvation is so ironic, right? It's about a man who sins and falls and dies for ostensibly wanting to become like God, who is then, in part two, saved by a God who becomes man, so that, chapter three, man might become God. Isn't that, isn't that wild? Yeah, and strangely simple at the same it's time. It's strangely simple. Except Undone the way it was at done. The same time. God, at God the same time. God really want to be yeah. man. So you're right. Initially, Jesus kind of does a reverse Passover into our, you know, muck and dirt and dust and grime and all the rest. The deep yogurt of sin and death, as Father Hennessy likes to <laughs> right. say. But all with the end that he can lead us to pass over to the other side. And see what Jesus will do, and I think we've talked about this in other podcasts, in the Gospel of John chapter 10, this is when he's in the temple and uh, the scribes and Pharisees and uh, that crowd, they say, are you going to keep us in suspense forever? Tell us plainly who you are. And so Jesus says, okay, the Father and I are one. Ah, well, they don't like this, and it says they, they try to seize him, but he escapes through their midst, through their grasp. And where does he go? He passed over through them. He does, but where does he go after he gets through their midst? The desert. He goes to where John had been, first been baptizing on the far side of, of the, the Jordan, Jordan River. So now he's on the Moab side of the Jordan, the east side of the Jordan, and it's from that point, so this is John chapter 10, that he passes over the waters of the Jordan, he raises Lazarus, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. This is history's great exodus, the Paschal Bridge that both Moses and Elijah 
And while we're at it, about a half a dozen, half a dozen other instances of but foreshadowing. Not just happening. by way of shadowy four types this in time, reality. but in the real in accomplishing reality. All right. Yeah. Do not keep us in suspense any longer, Chris. What, what does this have to do with the story? liturgy? Oh. <laughs> what has to do with the liturgy is that that's basically what the liturgy is. Oh. No. Yeah. The liturgy yeah. is me getting out of my comfortable warm bed and sitting on a hard pew when I'm tired for a long time on Sunday. When I'd rather be at Starbucks reading the New York Times. Yeah, well, the Starbucks and the New York Times is, uh, that's the, the that's deep yogurt podcast. of sin. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's the mess. No, see, behind every sacramental sign, within every acclamation, behind every word, uh, in every stained glass window, in every bit of art and architecture a day is this exodus, this great paschal mystery from fallen, fallen world to the heavenly Jerusalem. How so? I don't see that. I'm in the pew. I don't see people crossing over water. Yeah, but you... But you um, well, let's, t- let's put it this way. Is that reality what uh, theologian types call the res sacramenti, the reality Mm. of all sacraments is the paschal mystery of Christ, the suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension, the great exodus that he partook of uh, in Jerusalem, the same exodus and same paschal mystery that Moses and Elijah were talking to him about and that they themselves foreshadowed. But it seems a little tricky to me, right? This is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the paschal mystery made real on the altar. I don't see much except some cups and plates and bread and wine, and then I'm told it's something else. What does this have to do with any of that stuff? I don't see any of that there well, with my normal eyes. Why okay. were you even working here, Dennis? <laughs> <laughs> I'm playing the de- devil's advocate. Yeah. Well, every sacramental sign and symbol manifests, reveals, and makes that Paschal mystery present, sometimes more obviously than others. So let's go to the Easter Vigil for a moment, right? Yes. I know we've talked about this before. Ooh, I think I know what you're about to yeah, say. I yeah. love, love it. Yeah, so, well, this is, the, you know, it begins in darkness, and I suppose, you know, insofar as it's still March in the Northern Hemisphere, it's a little bit cold out there. And then all of a sudden there's this spark that ignites this, this fiat lux, this great fire, you know, in the midst of the darkness, like that first creation. Now mm. this is the, the beginning of a new creation. Remember two years ago, I was up at your place on the Easter Vigil in St. Philip's and Rolling Ground, and there was a thunderstorm going on, and it was dark in the church, and there was lightning on every side, lightning all the windows. Do you remember that? Oh, well, see, now that, that is actually fantastic. That's like Be- an eschatological he, See, here's, a, here, here's, here's another thing, though. You remember on uh, the Mount of the Transfiguration, and as I heard this story this time, this is what came to my mind, is that... Uh, it said that they were covered by a luminous cloud, hmm. a luminous cloud. That's very Old Testament God language, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, because right, if you look, if you look, Dennis, with your natural eyes, simply at clouds, they're rarely luminous, unless you've got some sort of thunderstorm in Kansas going on or something like that. Clouds aren't bright; they're shadowy and dark. And this luminous cloud on Mount Tabor cast. What did it say? The, 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 it, say it cast a shadow, or it, 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 it was so bright, okay? but clouds are not supposed to be bright, but this one is. Now, when you go back to the Exodus that Moses underwent in Exodus 14, there was similarly a luminous cloud. And in the Holy and the Holies of the Temple, Holy of Holies in the Temple. Is that right, same? The great cloud. Of cloud. Yeah, so, so that's... Um, 
that was a very, when you were up at St. Philip's and Rolling Ground, that was a very um, divine uh, uh, setting of the table that, that we should have this, uh, this thunder and lightning and cloud. But it's this, uh, what happens then, right, is the, the candle is blessed, and then the server is supposed to take a shovel full of coals out of the fire, and they start the, the thurible, they charge that up, and then this procession starts, and it goes with the, the thurifer, the column of cloud, and then comes the paschal candle, the pillar of fire, and then comes the priest standing in the place of Moses, and then comes the chosen people, all of us, leaving a land of darkness and entering into a promised land, which some sacramental uh, aesthetics person says is the uh, new Jerusalem uh, figure of heaven, the church that building. Be the church building. Is, yeah. is every procession that we see in the liturgy supposed to be an example of the Exodus at some point? Not necessarily that. Maybe. I would say not necessarily, though. It's that, you know, all of life is a process, is a passage, is a crossing over. And if life, the Christian life, is this process, then how is their church going to sacramentalize it? She's going to make you process, because that's how it works. You have this unseen reality, Paschal mystery, crossing over. She's going to say, all right, well, how can we make that seeable, smellable, tasteable, touchable? What's the other one? Hearable. Hearable. Audible. Yeah. Audible. Okay. So she's, Ooh, that's, audible, that's how she's going to use these signs and symbols. But to your point, Dennis, you know, behind every Eucharist, behind every baptism, behind every procession into the church, behind every bit of ritual sacramental symbolism is sort of waiting to be revealed, like Jesus on top of Mount Tabor, this great and glorious exodus from fallen earth to glorious heaven. And I love the idea that Christ initiated the sacraments in ways that are appropriate to us. It's not appropriate to us to murder someone on the altar every Sunday, five times every Sunday, right? To drink actual blood. Just three times. Three times. But Christ establishes the, the representation of his body in a sacrificial meal, right? This is my body. So the bread, at the beginning at least, becomes this place through which Christ's body is going to be given after the consecration, which makes sense, right? This is proper to you. I've equated these two things. And then, of course, there's the prehistory of bread, right? The bread of presence, the man in the desert, all these other things that brought God's presence to his people and averted starvation and disaster. Yeah. I'd like to hit upon what you just said about it makes sense and to go to this, this other point, because it, what we're saying here is that it's through our senses, that Aha. this unseen reality comes to us. But it's not like, it's not simply sensing the Mass and the liturgy through your natural senses like we do most of the time throughout the day. You have to sort of take your natural senses to a supernatural level and begin to see bread and water and smoke and light and fires and things like that through supernatural lenses. And this uh, is to, to the second point, is that to kind of soak up the radiance of the transfiguration, for example, you have to know how to stand in its presence and bask up uh, this, uh, this amazement. Right? You know what this is reminding me of? Tell me. When I was little, I had a Mickey Mouse watch and it had a little radium dial by all the numbers that would glow in the dark. But only glow in the dark if you held it up to the light. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and then, then you bring it in the dark room and it would light that slowly diminish. Oh, right? yeah. It literally soaked up the energy of fantastic the light. Fantastic. Shone or it those, back at Or you. those stars that you put on the... Yeah, the glow in the dark fantastic. star. Any glow in the dark stuff. Okay. Charged up from the source and then shine it Excellent. up. Excellent. 
All right. Well, let's go back and to our friend Christ Moses. Is like a black light who lets those things light up in permanence. Um. Let's sort. Of, let's take a few steps back first. <laughs> okay. Let's go back to Moses. You remember when he was talking to God face to face as one man speaks to a friend. glowed in the dark. Right. And then he came down from the mountain and he walks back into the camp of the Israelites. And they're like, you're a weirdo. Your face is lit up. (laughs) They're like, what are you doing here? We told you to go talk to God over there because we didn't want him in our camp. That's the whole point of us (laughs) being down here and you being up there. And now here you are bringing this radiance of God back into our camp. Cover up your face and get out of here. And that's what they made him do. So we had to wear a a veil over his face so that the the, the brightness wouldn't uh, uh, scare them so much. And I think kind of as an aside, you'll, you'll know this as an art and architectural historian, Dennis. Perhaps. Isn't it, Michael, I'm thinking of uh, the, the sculpture of Moses by Michelangelo, and it looks like he has these cow horns on his head. Yes. Oh, yeah. We That's an that. old uh, translation of whatever the Hebrew word is, like horns of light. People took it literally and made horns. That's, that's right. I always thought that was the weirdest we thing. We have that on the column. That's right. The center that's right. Here, yeah. Sometimes that, they actually look like little rays of light sure. coming up. Sometimes they actually look like horns. But, but that's exactly what they're trying to depict is Moses is speaking to God. And you say this often, citing somebody, I don't remember who, Chris being Chris in the Chris. presence of holiness bestows confers? holiness, something yeah. like that? What is God it? is holy and confers holiness. Okay. The presence of God is holy. That's Great. from Yves Congar. So you go into the presence of God, and even, you know, this little uh, etymology here, uh, ador- adoration. Adora. It means literally mouth to mouth. When you come mouth to mouth, vis-a-vis, face to face, speaking to God as one friend speaks to another, you are going to start to soak up the holiness and the brilliance and the radiance so that when you come back down from the mountain and into the world, you're ready to radiate that to other people. That's how this podcast works. My mouth comes to your mouth, and then your intellect radiates into my body, and then I put that information on the internet, and everyone's smarter because of it. <laughs> well, well, we hope that's how it works. <laughs> but there are some liturgical implications here, right? Well, every single thing. Or am I jumping the gun on you? Oh yeah, let me make one other point. Let's go back to the Mount of Tabor again. Okay, so you've got Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and then you have Peter, James, and John. And Jesus uh, is transfigured before them. And what's happening down at the base of the mountain is that, if I remember this properly, there's there's a father whose son is like possessed by a demon or something like that. And I think I should have looked this up for the podcast, is the other apostles are trying to do what they can to, to get this demon out of there. But what happens is, it's kind of a, it's an easy line to miss. And again, it's a, it's not in the account we read yesterday. It's in the account of the transfiguration in the gospel of Mark. It says the three of, the, well, the four of them, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they're walking down the mountain and they're kind of walking back into this group where this father has a son who's possessed. And in the gospel of Mark, it says they turn and they look at Jesus and the three and they are quote unquote, utterly amazed. Mm. Now, you think, well, what are they, what are they, what's so amazing about walking down the side of a mountain? I think what's happening there is the same sort of thing that happened to Moses, Moses yeah. is that when the, the apostles were standing in the presence beneath this luminous cloud, hearing the voice of the Father, enveloped in the Holy Spirit, witnessing the transfigured Jesus, what did it do to them but transfigure them and it changed them? All right, now, Dennis, what are the liturgical implications for us? 
Well, we want all everything liturgically to be appeared as if it's transfigured, right? What does the transfiguration mean for Christ? Right, it's the anticipation of the fullness of existence that He has as member of the Trinity, and therefore bringing even His humanity into that fullness of existence. Right? It's not just oh, He became a ghost in the ball of light. It's His body, His clothes became radiant. So, for us, we want to participate in that transfigured nature, so that people who come into contact with all that transfigured stuff can be transfigured themselves and go on to transfigure the world yes right so we've talked about this before remember how the council describes what the rights of the liturgy are supposed to be dull boring mediocre and <laughs> suburban right. remember father martis always used to say distinguished by a noble simplicity and distinguished sounds a lot like extinguished <laughs> but you are the man but, of that word well only because somebody else taught me it once upon a time uh that uh, ritus nobilis simplicitate Fulgeant. And this fulgeant means let them shine, let them be bright, let them radiate. radiate. And so what going to the Mass should be like is like going to Mount Tabor. And in, in, um, there's, a, there's a document on Easter called Pascalis Solemnitatis. Uh, it's called a circular letter on the preparation and celebration of the Easter, Easter feasts. So 1988, Jesse. You missed a joke there, Jesse. It's, <coughs> and, it's a uh, circular letter. It's very hard to read. You have to keep turning it around. <laughs> anyway, keep like going. The letter and o? it says that uh, it, likens least, it likens Easter to climbing the holy mountain. Lent is like climbing the holy mountain of Easter. And uh, so this transfiguration business, especially during Lent, is kind of a, an icon for us as we're climbing the holy mountain of Easter to stand in the radiant presence of Jesus. And when you're face-to-face with him, you're standing in holiness, you become holy like Moses, like Peter, James, and John, and it transfigures you and it beautifies you. And so that when you descend this mountain and go back into your family and your workplace and in the world, you're able to radiate that same... We're all Mickey Mouse watches. Basically, yes. We could have just said that from the start. Yeah. Been done with this. And if the liturgy is... You know what I call a dim bulb. Oh, yeah, we'll turn the dimmer up to three watts. Well, that's not going to charge your watch very well. But if the liturgy is presented, music, architecture, art, vestments, preaching, incense, so that people actually come into contact with this bright bulb of transfigured reality, then they get all charged up. Take it out to the dark world. If, if Kevin were here, he'd say the liturgy should go to 11. <laughs> turn it up to 11, baby. So to surmise, so. our Young Adult Liturgy Conference is July, June 26, <laughs> It's called Transfigured. It's called Transfigured. And you might leave with a glowing face. You will be better looking at the end of the Transfigured Conference than you... Your wife will throw you that's, out of the house, however. That's why I have to go every year, because I just <laughs> let myself go every year. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, so those are my thoughts on uh, the reading for the second Sunday of Lent and how the Transfiguration has so much meaning, not just for Christian life in general, but especially liturgical meaning and meaning for Easter in the Trinity. And it means God likes us. Awesome. Because he says, you can share in my own divine glory even on earth by way of foretaste. I love it. All right. Anything else, gentlemen? That's plenty. Go be transfigured. B. Transfigured. B. B. Transfigured. T-R-A-N-S-F-I-G-U-R-E-D. That's true. He doesn't lie. Hey, should we enter a liturgy question? Let's go back to this. Yes, yes, yes. I got a lot of questions to go through. All right. We'll see how many answers we have. Hopefully you know, one. We, we could have Lars answer liturgy questions. That might be, that would be hilarious. Let's pursue it. Okay. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? 
Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Okay. Let's answer this in a way that's exciting and not dry. This question comes from <laughs> Deacon Tall, Bald, and Called. I really like that. TB and C. Uh, TB and C says, Hi, I've been a listener since the late 2018s when Jesse, yes, Jesse, helped our parish by recommending your then soon to be released music and liturgy course. He says, In my last parish, when the new pastor arrived, one of his early changes was to the time when extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion are to approach the altar. The change was that they approach at the Lamb of God versus after the priest's reception from the chalice. Could you please discuss the rubrics guidance, the rubrics guidance for that time and the reasons that the clarification was issued? My recollection is that there is a specific reason for specifying the timing. However, mm-hmm. now that I am a liturgy guy listener, I figure I can ask my guys for mm-hmm. help. Well, thanks, TB and C. Here's the rubrics. Before you give the rubric, yeah. I'll give you my thought on why they thought they wanted to clarify it, is that there were people, then called communion ministers, now we call them properly extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, who were coming up in many people's minds a little too early. So it almost looked like they were con-celebrants. And they oh, were yeah. there before the final elevation. And so it became like, do they go up early and are they participating in the last part of the rite with the priest? Or do they come up after the consecration because they're in the phase of distribution of communion? And so I think there was some lack of clarity about who did what and who's on the altar and when. And so, Chris, what did they come mm-hmm. up with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, hold that thought and we'll go back to it because that's what's underlying these, uh, these rubrics. So the first one is from the General Instruction of the Roman Missal number 162. 162. In case of necessity, the priest may depute suitable faithful um, to, to distribute the Eucharist. Okay? Otherwise, the bishop has, has the uh, oversight, the authority to depute the faithful on a more temporary basis. So what I like about that is, in case of necessity, not just because Mr. and Mrs. Jones want to be involved in right, church, right? Right, These are extraordinary ministries. They're not in the norm. Okay? But it says, these ministers should not approach the altar before the priest has received communion. Okay? Then, also in the front of the missal, there's a uh, document called something like Norms for the Distribution and Reception of Holy Communion in Both Kinds in the Diocese of the United States of America. Honestly, mm-hmm. that's its whole title. I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Uh, this is at number 38. It says, if extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion are required by pastoral need, mm-hmm. Dennis, they should not approach the altar before the priest has received communion. Okay, so both the universal legislation and the particular legislation, which is approved by the uh, universal and supreme uh, pontiff, say that they are not to approach the altar before the priest has received. A couple of thoughts. One, I think, is that <clears throat> the normative minister who would do this, 
Mm, that's not quite right. The normative or the first extraordinary minister who would do this would be an instituted acolyte. And the instituted acolyte is already in the sanctuary. So that's why I think it says does not approach the altar versus does not approach the sanctuary because the acolyte is already in the sanctuary. So I think that explains some of the, mm. the verbiage. But I think Dennis is right on there about you know, when, ding, ding, ding. when the, the church celebrates the liturgy, the council says, she is most, she's her, her most visible self. And if the church is this mystical body of Christ with a caput, a head, and uh, members, and each uh, element of the mystical body doing all of but only those parts which pertain to him or her, that sacramentalizes the mystical body of Christ, then if you have different parts of the body doing things that do not pertain to him or her, then it just, I think it's an ecclesial principle, it just muddles and weakens the, uh, the, the radiance of the mystical body, uh, which, which is there. You know, kind of a, along those same lines, there's, there's a rubric that says, even after communion, it's only with the bishop's permission that the extraordinary minister of Holy Communion can consume what remains in the chalice. And the point underlying all this is this ecclesial one, is that extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion are deputed to distribute Holy Communion. And there's nothing then for them to be doing in the sanctuary during the Lamb of God. Mm-hmm. And even after the distribution is done, that's somebody else's job to consume what remains. And so I was I, always told to con- to go back to the little table consume if you had the chalice to consume yeah. the remainder. And- well, you might, but it's only with the permission of the Dawson Bishop. That that's Just telling you what I was told, Chris. Yeah. Right. yeah. Now I've heard before that the moment when the priest receives communion is actually the completion of the Eucharistic prayer in a sense. So he's not saying any words at that point, but that is when the Eucharistic prayer finishes, which seems to me like a, a good time to say, okay, Eucharistic prayer is finished. Reception has happened. Now come take and distribute rather than to interrupt that the completion of the priestly act of the Eucharistic prayer. Yeah. Oh, I think that makes some sense. I mean, you, you, Frankly, you probably come up with a litany of reasons why the rubric is uh, what it is, but I think those, those were a couple of them. I do think, you're, you're right, uh, the Eucharistic prayer, the, the rubrics say, are offered by the priest celebrant and not by you and me along with him. On the other hand, you and I have helped to kind of make that sacrifice by joining our hearts to it and completing the sacrifice. Uh, ideal, I mean, the priest celebrant must receive from the altar, uh, but in a kind of an extended way. You and I are to be receiving, completing that sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway. All right. Tall, ball, and bald, and called. I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys or tweet Dennis at DMAC Super Taster. I almost never check it, but I also almost never get any tweets. So please tweet me. Or send a railroad message to Chris. Pony at, Express message. Yeah, that's right. Barney's Nothing? Drive. Nothing? All right. Well, thank you, and God, God bless. bless. God bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. <laughs>